all about building lasting relationships. Call 223-4448 or online at rbtechvt.com. When you think of business technology and communications, think of RB Technologies. Here's an offer just for Vermonters that's always in season. Savings on Energy Star CFLs starting at just 99 cents. Pick the better bulb and save. CFLs save energy, lasting up to 10 years. Switch just one traditional bulb for a CFL and you'll save $30 over the lifetime of that bulb. That's not a bad investment for 99 cents. Stop by your local store and look for the Energy Star CFLs starting at 99 cents while supplies last. Visit EfficiencyVermont.com and pick the better bulb. It's time to get the story behind the story. Interviews with newsmakers, newsbreakers, and your phone calls. Radio Vermont presents The Mark Johnson Show. Thank you, Jim Condy. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Thanks for tuning in. Beautiful day out there today. Thanks for spending part of it with us. Nice to be uh, back with you. Got a couple of people to uh, thank here who sat in while I was away before we get down to business here. Don't want to forget that. Uh, I want to thank uh, Fran Stoddard, also John Walters, Joel Nashman, uh, former Governor Jim Douglas, and the Chief himself, Ken Squire, all thanking uh, you, making it possible for me to get out of here for a little bit of time. Had a fabulous uh, trip uh, to Europe. Well, I'm happy to tell you all about it, but uh, we're going to get right down to business. In fact, speaking of Europe, we're going to head overseas to uh, begin the week here. Later this hour, we uh, will come back home here and chat about console wars blake harris will join us coming up at the bottom of the hour he has written the uh the definitive book about the wars between sega and nintendo and it was uh, actually a closer battle than you think and and could have gone completely the different way nintendo really wound up winning the war and uh sega put to the sidelines here but there was a moment there and we'll talk about it where really uh sega could have been the one that was became the dominant gamer and it is big, big money that is uh, involved. We'll take your phone calls throughout the program. Love to hear from you. You can reach us at 244-1777. That's our local number right here in the Waterbury area. And if it's a toll call for you to reach us, you can reach us on our toll-free lines at 877-291-8255. That's 877-291-TALK. We uh, head overseas this morning, and talk, we're going to talk about something I just find absolutely fascinating. We're, uh, we're going to talk about global warming, and we'll talk with a uh, psychologist and economist, an interesting combination, and delve into this question, why it is that people just really either don't want to deal with this, have somehow figured out a way to compartmentalize this in their brain and justify all of their behavior. You know, we're looking at Exhibit A here, who you know burned some uh, some gas getting on on vacation. And uh, let's give a nice summary of my welcome this morning to Pear Espen Stockness, who is the author of What We Think About When We Try Not to Think About Global Warming. I mean, you can get more passion out of people in Vermont talking about whether or not to pave a dirt road. Pear, thanks for uh, joining us. Uh, who's joining us this morning from Norway? How are you this morning? I'm excellent this afternoon in Oslo. Thank you. I'm great being with you. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about your background. How did, how did it wind up that you're both a psychologist and an economist at the same time? Um, I was doing some organizational consulting for Norwegian government, particularly the Ministry of Energy, and then um, looking into the long-term future of energy and society, um, I was asked to model, um, uh, assist modeling for a group of economists. And um, the way they uh, approached the problem struck me as uh, quite, 
pretty narrow-minded and very dogmatic. So I ended up wondering how come economists choose to view the world they do. So I wrote a PhD and did a research on, on economic theory and the mental models of economists. Hmm. Tell me about the energy use in the mix in Norway. Oh, we're all hydropower on, uh, onshore, and then offshore we have a lot of uh, petroleum production, which we export mainly to Europe. Okay. No wind power? Hardly any, because if you're like 98%, 100% hydropower, uh, then um, what's the use of wind power? The only thing it does is to um, give us an oversupply. So uh, wind power should be welcome here, but only if we could export our surplus power to EU. Okay. Um, so it doesn't really make sense uh, until we have the cables in place. Okay. Tell me more about the hydropower. Um, Norway is a very mountainous country. So all along the west coast, there are high altitudes, typically three to 5,000 feet, with lots of snow and rain. And all that water just pours into the ocean. So 100 years ago, Norwegians started to build uh, hydropowers where uh, the waters, uh, the rivers are going. And... Uh, that has given us abundant supply. So we have too much power, too much clean power in this place. Wow, amazing. You're, one of the premises of your book here is that there is less, in, less interest among Europeans and English-speaking people about this issue of global warming. Can you tell me, what's the, what's the evidence that shows there's less interest? Yeah, so my work really starts with the mystery of the psychological climate paradox. <laughs> because since 1989, uh, we've had thousands more uh, of articles and research and the IPCC reports, five of them. And the effect, on average, has been that more people were concerned about climate change in 1989 than there are today. So it's like the more facts we get, the less the concern. And uh, as you ask, the, the facts underlying this is um, longitudinal attitude surveys, uh, for instance, Gallup in the U.S. and Ipsos Mori in Norway. And is it, I mean, is it statistically significant? Absolutely. It's very clear declining concern uh, among particularly, as you said, English-speaking, but also Norwegian uh, population. So that means that understanding the human responses to climate change is clearly becoming just as important as understanding climate change itself. Okay. All right. We'll talk a little bit about what's, the, what's your theory here on why people seem to be less interested when the news seems to be getting worse. Yeah. So um, the question that drives me really is, uh, is humanity up to the task or are we kind of inevitably short term? Um, or maybe put positively, what are the conditions uh, that would help humans to think and act for the long term so we don't blow past uh, the two degree uh, limit, so to speak, and burn down the, the, glo the globe? And what I've found by reviewing uh, hundreds of psychology studies and social anthropology studies is that there are five main barriers that seem to pile up one after the other uh, when it comes to human relations of uh, climate change. Um, to sum them up, I've given the name starting with D. So it's the first is a distance barrier. The second is a doom barrier. The third is a dissonance barrier. We also have a denial barrier, and finally, we have one I call the identity barrier. Um, the distance barrier means that we 
perceived climate does distant in time because science typically speak about the year 2100 or in terms of space. So we typically hear about polar bears drowning or Arctic ice melting or cyclones in Indonesia or floods in Bangladesh, etc. And also the social impact at distant and responsibility is somebody else is responsible. It's not me. Mm-hmm. And the effect of this psychological distancing is that the sense of urgency goes down and the concern goes down. It's, it's somewhere else. I have other nearer concerns to worry about. Okay, all right. And keep, secondly, keep um, science communicators have overused the framing, as we call it, of doom and cost and sacrifice. Now, if you say that the world is going to hell, if you continue just as today, then what you do is actually psychologically generating fear and guilt in people, and this results in avoidance. So you, you want to avoid the topic and the messenger and uh, quickly learn to, to look, focus your attention somewhere else. Okay, well stop right there. Why do, why do we do that as humans? Um, like if, if remember, we, we're all good at this actually as humans. Uh, back when you were a kid, if you wanted to steal some chocolate back at home in the kitchen and your mother or father saw you and kind of slashed your hand a little or give you a rebuke, then what did you do the next day? Did you uh, stop stealing chocolate? Well, actually, no. Um, but you just ma- make sure that you were stealing at a point or a time where nobody was watching. So you avoid the person or uh, the messenger giving you that negative feeling. Mm. So in the same way, people now are fed up with um, doom messages saying that now the Antarctic ice is melting anyway, so it doesn't matter where we're heading. And you're lifestyle is um, causing all this and causing the suffering for poor people. So if you repeat that often enough, um, our mind uh, wants to avoid the guilt that comes with it. That right. frame, so yeah. to speak. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. You, uh, thirdly, you, yeah? You also, and I think, I think it's within this doom part, you talk about this whole idea of how the media frames it with... Uh, with countervailing positions which they give equal weight. That's also uh, a good point, yeah. It's a, well, the, the, the false balance point of view because journalists have been trained to, uh, you know, hear one side and then find another side. But if one side is 97 to 89% and then the other side is 1% to 2%, giving them equal airing time is uh, what we call a false balance. It's not true balance. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, number three, which I didn't hear. What was the third one? Oh, it's a dissonance. Dissonance. Cognitive okay. dissonance, right. as psychologists call it. Yeah, okay. And this is just a complicated word for saying that what we know conflicts with what we do. So uh, if I smoke, for instance, and I also learn that smoking leads to cancer, I have a little conflict going inside of the cell. So I could easily get out of that by saying, well, I don't really smoke that much. Or um, I'm really, you know, training a lot, so I can give myself a smoke now. And the same phenomenon is is appearing when it comes to how we relate to climate change. So, because my lifestyle has been conditioned by the previous century, when there was no problem with driving cars, flying airplanes, and uh, having energy-intensive buildings and meat stuffs, but now we know so much more about how destructive it is, and then still we are stuck with these old. Uh, old houses, old cars, old roads, way of doing things. So 
that forces us into a dissonance with um, each time I hear about how important the climate crisis is and then I look at what I'm doing and what my friends are doing and what the government is doing. Well, it doesn't seem to add up. So uh, the effect of this is that I start to doubt. Um, there's a market or a demand side, so to speak, for doubt. It's much easier if I believe that um, climate isn't that serious after all. Serious after all. Well, then so that throw, way, um, yeah. And then I'm you throw let off the hook. You throw in a little distance and doom on top of that, and you've got yourself a pretty, pretty uh, uh, deep combi- combination there. That's the problem, Mark. You're hitting it right on. It's the distance, the doom, and the dissonance in, in combination. That's what really makes it difficult for people to keep climate change as a high concern, high priority. And then, since this is a becomes then a kind of uh, uncomfortable topic. Um, uh, we are also good at using a psychological mechanism called denial. Now, in the public discourse, I think the word denial has been overused, uh, and also it's been used as a pejorative for you know blaming the other side as and they're stupid or they're ignorant or they're immoral. But denial is a very common psychological mechanism in the sense that each time there is something troubling about my life or uh, something new, if I learn about atrocities or children being abused by a neighbor or whatever, it's, if I bring it up, I know conflicts will ensue. So it's better to live as if I do not know. Mm-hmm. And this is really denial, both to know something and then to live as if I don't know at the same time. Mm-hmm. And. And as humans, unfortunately, we're pretty good at this. Um, so we had it the same cultural denial, so to speak, in terms of uh, slavery, uh, because uh, the blacks, you know, we, we knew they were suffering, but they weren't really humans. So I prefer to live if I didn't, if that didn't matter, as if that didn't matter. Mm-hmm. And also with women, voting rights, and the Vietnam War, and communism, and we have all these kind of. Um, cultural periods where we agree as a culture on what to not to, to talk about. Uh, and then at some point there could be a shift and then this denial is uh, transformed into an acknowledgement. And my question in the book is how long will it take before uh, the cultural denial in terms of climate change starts to shift both on an individual and um, a cultural level? We're talking with Per Espen Stockness. He's the author of What We Think About When We Try Not to Think About Global Warming. Okay, so with the fifth one, identity. What's the deal on that? Um, this is, has to do with how we um, use our values and our sense of self to um, define what facts I want to relate to. So um, if... If new information requires me to change my values, then that information is likely to lose. The values will eat uh, facts uh, for breakfast, so to speak. Uh, And so if my values is um, freedom, uh, small government, um, uh, no to regulations, and climate scientists come up to say we need more taxes, more regulations, etc., then I don't like these solutions. And therefore, basing on my self values, I will tend to uh, override or ignore uh, those facts. So I don't like those solutions because they fit with my political or values uh, position. Mm-hmm. Boy, you know, Per, this sounds like an awful lot to overcome. 
Yeah, but luckily we, we have science now that show how we can do it as well. Um, and uh, we have lots of evidence that uh, points out what really works and what doesn't work. So we know that just continuing with the information flow, information campaigns or climate, that doesn't cut it. So what we need is to do something different than that. And um, in the same way, there are five solutions and strategies that are emerging now, uh, which we know actually works. Um, and I, to sum them up, uh, it's to use the power of social networks. Uh, we need to use supportive framings, not the doom one. We need to make it simple for people to act. That's called nudging. And we use, need to use the power of storytelling better. And we need better signals. So we don't just talk about CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere, but actually something that we can have an influence on, something that relates to me personally, not just global. Okay. Things. All right. Can you, can you, st can you start uh, with yeah. that last one there? So, so give me, how, would, how should it be talked about that would get people more interested or whatever the right word is? Mm. Um, uh, the signals one has to do with uh, climate science. I've been talking a lot about PPMs, or parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere, right. uh, which doesn't make sense to people. Uh, it's now past 400, but that doesn't, it's impossible for people to relate to that number. In the same way, it's been a lot of talk about sea level rise in inches per decade, which is also a kind of very difficult number. Now, what we need is not more climate science signals, but signals about how society is turning around. So how much better was our energy generation um, this year compared to the previous one? Uh, how many more people are riding bikes now compared to less, or public transport? How, and also maybe all the way down to a personal level, like a bank in Norway is now starting to offering uh, a climate carbon emission account alongside the bank account statement. So you can see what's my monthly um, emissions based on the purchases I do and how does that change from one month to the next. This, mm. These kind of indicators bring climate change home and make it a much more personal, near, and relevant to uh, my life. Let me uh, take a call here. Let's go to Worcester. Roger, good morning. You're on the air with Pe uh, Per Stockness. Yeah, good morning. Uh, thanks for having this, Mark. Um, uh, I think a lot of climate science, being on the front lines with this since about, uh, I don't know, since the 1990s, um, I can point to some optimistic things that are happening right now. For example, Mark, I'll ask you this question. Do, how much, um, w what is the percentage of fossil fuel for certain Vermont cooperative uh, utility companies? Do you have any idea? What, give me the question again. Well, I belong to Washington Electric Co-op. Okay. And just think, what is the percentage of uh, fossil fuels? Um, just take a wild guess. Uh, I'd say uh, 70%. Zero. Wow. Nobody right. knows that. Now, nobody died. Nobody lost their job. They spin turbines uh, using other fuels, and we get electricity. So that means if you had a hybrid car that you plugged in, you would have a zero fossil fuel print. Now, this is what people don't get. They don't see this particular side of it. We, we did the right things. Uh, the Washington Electric Co-op did the right things. A lot of our local power companies in Vermont are doing the right things, and it's not hurting anybody. I mean, there is the argument about, you know, wind power and too much solar power and this kind of thing. But 
on a diversification way, we, we're doing the right thing. And, you know, frankly, Washington Electric Co-op is an example for the rest of the world. Now, nobody died. Nobody lost their job. The economy didn't go into the ground because of this. So this is all, you know, it's, it's crap. Mm-hmm. So that's the... Uh, <laughs> and here's the deal. The thing that's on the other side that's going to drive climate change is going to be the, the constant billboard in the sky of extreme weather. Your weather is going to get more extreme. Sea levels are going to rise. You're going to see higher waves on top of higher sea level that's going to inundate cities, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this little thing called weather that's going to be reminding everybody on a pretty much on a daily basis, and that's my comment. All right. Thank you for your call. Per, what do you make of all that? Um, I love this story. I think that's exactly the type of stories we need to be telling more. Um, local stories that say something about how people are responding. And uh, these are examples of what I call green growth. When we uh, improve the economy, we make more jobs and will at the same time bring emissions way down. So the story that he's furthering here is exactly the type of story that we need to talk, talk more about. Uh, and also, as you do this, um, and bring that home to people, for instance, with solar panels. Um, some research shows that if one house in a neighborhood get a solar panel on the roof, then the likelihood of the other neighbors also getting it goes way up. Mm-hmm. So uh, solar panels seem to be uh, contagious. And this is what I call using the power of social networks. And it brings um, climate change around all these barriers. It's no longer distance. It's no longer doom. It's no longer dissonance, but it's the opposite. It's near, it's personal, and it's consistent uh, with what we need. What about Roger's theory that this extreme weather that we see, is that going to affect people, or is that more of the doom thing? Uh, Extreme weather has the potential to change people, but research shows that uh, it doesn't really break through all the barriers. So, for instance, even if there has been a lot of flooding, a lot of uh, wildfires, and a lot of um, uh, storms, um, that doesn't really change people's minds. They just go, go, up, go back, build their house up, uh, and try to continue with life as uh, usual. Uh, so having uh, extreme weather from time to time, unfortunately, uh, doesn't bring the majority of people around. It only confirms the belief in those who already believe in climate change. By telling these positive stories, Pear, is there a danger that you're really engaging in another kind of denial because you're just focusing on the positive and not maybe really dealing with reality. Exactly. Uh, it's an issue that I go deeply into into the last part of my book. And um, there is a kind of Pollyanna hope that, you know, this is passive and it's optimistic. Uh, so it, it will turn out all right. Whatever happens, it will be fine. Somebody will solve it for us. So it's kind of waiting for some magic to happen. Um, active hopes and maybe combining that with the skepticism that we don't really know what's coming and yet uh, I want to go all in and see what I can do right now and that's its own type of reward that puts us in a position of what I call the grounded hope uh, which looks into the misery of it all but that still uh, continues uh, with a smile and, and, a, and a kind of determination to do what's needed and that has its own kind of uh, reward. Mm-hmm. You mentioned social network, and you just briefly mentioned it again a couple of moments ago. But tell me more. What What do you mean? How How can that be used effectively? Um, let's say that uh, you want to um, shift messengers from um, you know scientists and lab coat type of thing to somebody that are much nearer to people, a peer messenger. 
uh, one way of doing that is, for instance, greening sports events. So rather than climate scientists speaking to the, the choir, so to speak, you would have um, a green sports event and green sports stars that want to show that they are on board with the environment and climate. And that brings it home to people who otherwise couldn't care less about uh, lab coats type of uh, information campaigns. Okay. Uh, another way of, way of doing it is to comparing um, your power conservation with neighbors. So one study showed that if one group of household was compared to uh, their neighbors, while others were told to cut power because of uh, it's good for their wallet, or it's good for the planet, or uh, it's good for their grandchildren and future generations, uh, the only group that really improved was not the one that got economic profit, or not the one who was asked to take consideration of future generations, but it was the people who were compared to their neighbors here and now. Uh, this is uh, built on the, what we call the social norms, which is what I believe others are doing, and it's a very powerful motivational aspect, much more informa motivational than information. Mm -hmm. Do you see any indication, is Europe different than the United States on this? Is there more of what you're talking about, a tipping going the other way here or not? Uh, I think we're seeing lots of um, change all over the place, and I agree with the, the one who called in that it's been um, uh, under-communicated how much is shifting. Uh, typically, um, media are good at uh, telling stories about the big catastrophes or the big uh, negative news, but all the change that's happening right now from uh, city level, at community level, uh, at state level, uh, and not just on the national level, it's, uh, it, we're seeing a rapid transformation of the economy. And there are many drivers behind this, and particularly the rapid cost falls of wind and solar. So um, there is good reason it's, it's for um, uh, hopeful development, uh, what I call the green growth development, towards uh, 2030. I see no reason to kind of... Uh, remain in the depression and despair, even if it might be very important for people to acknowledge that we are in despair and, and in that despair find uh, a deeper motivation. Is there another way other than, say, the Gallup and the other poll that you mentioned to measure this, whether this change, this psychological change is happening? Um, yeah, there's been lots of different studies, and um, uh, for instance, one of the most positive ones is to show the support in the American public for the EPA rule for the coal power plants, which is really high, up to 70%. Uh, and there have been other polls that look into how positive people are to solar, etc., which is very high. Uh, the problem is that very few of these polls show uh, long-term trends. Uh, typically, they're made at a one point in time. Uh, and that is why I've been looking into those studies that have been using the same methodology uh, year after year after year after year, so you can see the long-term uh, changes. Mm -hmm. um, and I think um, we have, um, for instance, in Norway, just last year, after a period of very warm weather, we saw a very high uptake. People were much more concerned about climate change this spring than they have ever been before. Uh, so... Also, I think when, as we start to take action, this will counteract the dissonance barrier and uh, hopefully uh, help build uh, a bottom-up support for more ambitious climate policy uh, in the coming years now. Yeah. China, is, China is also moving very quickly these days, uh, and uh, India and Brazil is also jumping on board. So um, 
there's a lot of momentum now, and uh, I can easily see how it will turn out well as well. So we need a positive story uh, that we talk about this. All right, let me go to Hyde Park here. Ken, good morning. Good morning. Uh, very interesting work. We've been doing a lot of work in that area ourselves. In fact, spent most of Fourth of July talking about exactly what you're talking about. A couple things. First of all, for Roger, uh, you might want to have him comment on the poll of American meteorologists that shows that 60% don't believe in global warming. Where'd you get where'd you, that, that number sense too high? Where'd you get that number? Uh, I, would, it, I, I got it from friends who are scientists who are directly involved in it. Uh, the number is right. The problem is that most meteorologists are not scientists. They're uh, script readers. Yeah. <laughs> so you get the weather bimbo type okay, people. Right, right. But nonetheless, it is the, it's the profession that's bringing us weather. Uh, I would like to hear Piers talk a little bit more about the same effect by scientists who refuse to engage in the conversation because it's uh, sort of beneath them. It's a waste, it seems to be a waste of time because people won't believe what they're saying. And correlated with that is some information, uh, another piece of research that came out recently that says that the more that you tell people the truth about something, or the more that you prove something, the more they disbelieve that which you're trying to prove. Wow. That's... And that's actually in the, uh, in the vaccine world. Yeah, okay. Which right, is me... a direct Got it. power to climate change. All right, let me have him comment on that. Thank you. Um, so first, in terms of climate scientists engaging in communication, there is, um, as you say, most of them don't really want it because uh, it leads to a lot of resistance and critique and uh, participating in a public debate that has been even violent at point. So most of the climate scientists are called to their work because they believe in their, work, their job is to uncover the truth and not uh, engage in what they see as activism or political debates. Um, this is a huge area, and I just published another book called climate, sorry, uh, Science-Based Activism, which looks at the, the interaction of science and uh, activism. Uh, so they have a lot to lose by sticking their neck out and very little to gain. That's the problem. Um, and your second point was had, what had to do with how, far, how hard are you pushing the facts in terms of, for instance, vaccines or other areas uh, that are ideologically um, loaded and this is the identity barrier that I was speaking about. So one researcher, Dan Kahane at Yale, has did an interesting study where uh, he saw uh, the correlation between science uh, intelligence level and the probability of getting it uh, a question right or wrong uh, when it is loaded in terms of ideology. And what he found was that, for instance, um, the question, is the Earth's temperature increasing because of A, fossil fuels from human activity, or B, variations in the Earth's environment, that is the sun or whatever. And the right answer from a science point of view is A, uh, and most people got that right, but uh, if your identity is loaded with values that go against a big government, um, for instance, conservative values, then the more science intelligence you have, the higher proportion got it wrong. So they chose the other option. Uh, which means that um, sometimes 
having science, intelligence, and knowledge uh, will make you do um, more wrong because you're using your science intelligence to defend your values, your preconceived uh, positions, rather than letting the facts uh, change you. So the values override the facts rather than the other way around. Uh, and that's the psychology uh, of identity that is behind this. Last question. You know, the political system seems to be just spectacularly uh, incapable of dealing with this problem. And, you know, there are a lot of vested interests that they represent economically that don't want to see anything happen and they really are looking at the short term. How does the political system deal with this effectively? Um, you're spot on. We need uh, both commercial uh, and political uh, action. And what is happening right now is that politicians are waiting for the public to actually um, give rewards in terms of votes to the politicians who want to do something with it. So the politicians are waiting for the public, and the public are waiting for the politicians to start to take the lead on this. And this is why I wrote my wrote this book, What We Think About When We Try Not To Think About Global Warming, because uh, we need to know how to build a bottom-up public support for ambitious climate policies. Um, the way to do this is to change the way we talk and think about climate, and by using social networks, by using supportive frames, but making it more simple to act uh, in a climate-friendly way, and by new storytelling, for instance, the green growth or the stewardship story, and better signals, uh, we know that we can improve the public bottom-up pressure on politicians. Um, there are a lot of supply of you know, uh, misinformation and spin, but there's no reason why that should win. The reason why it has been winning is because of the barriers we were talking about, particularly the dissonance barrier, which makes a demand side for doubt. Uh, so if we moved to this other mode of communicating about climate, then we um, avoid and uh, move around, so to speak, these barriers. And we only need about 10 to 20 percent of the population to give climate change a higher voting priority to uh, regain a democratic edge on this. And then even if industry pours money into it, as for instance it did with the tobacco, uh, the smoking causes cancer issue. Right. In the same way, we can override uh, the, the inertia in the political system. Thank you. Thank you for your time this morning, or this afternoon for you. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Mark. Great being with you. Per Espen Stockness is the author of What We Think About When We Try Not to Think About Global Warming. We'll take a short break. When we come back, run a little late. Apologize to Blake Harris. He's the author of Console Wars. We'll talk about the battle between Sega and Nintendo. And uh, we'll be back for some gaming right after this. Having a new website designed? Think beyond PC.